hello and welcome to the St. Eminence podcast. My name is Simon Carley. My name is Ross Fisher. And today we're at the London Trauma Conference, listening to a whole range of lectures, everything from pre-hospital care through to definitive care. And I'm delighted to be joined by Ross. If you've heard him on the podcast before, you'll know that Ross is a paediatric surgeon over at Sheffield Children's Hospital. There's a special interest in... Paediatric oncology. Well, this is a trauma conference. It's a bit weird, isn't it? It is intriguing, but yes, I have also an interest in paediatric trauma, but I don't do it very often. Which brings us to your talk this afternoon, which was a little bit odd, because we've heard a lot about the management of paediatric trauma in this conference, and it sounded from the title, if I remember rightly, paediatric trauma is no place for a paediatric surgeon, which sounds a bit crazy. I think 20 years ago, paediatric trauma was managed by paediatric surgeons. Uh, we didn't have emergency physicians of your quality and experience, and the only people who dealt with trauma were paediatric surgeons, with some very terrified paediatricians. Times have changed. Um, paediatric surgeons are very seldom involved in trauma for lots of reasons, and I do wonder at the fact that we should be involved. So it was a little bit of questioning of what we actually do, trying to define what our roles are, but also, I think, passing the baton on to people with experience, with education, with time to manage children better than we can from the places that we are when we're on call, which is not the emergency department. So what made you initially think about this? Why did this sort of pop into your head as, a, as a questioning whether or not you are the right person to be? When I was a consultant in Leicester, I was asked to help set up the trauma, paediatric trauma teams. And the people on the paediatric trauma team were ED, orthopaedics, neurosurgery, and the paediatric surgeons. And there were various problems because none of those staff were able to get to emergencies as quickly as they needed to. And it's intriguing that this continues, that trauma teams were staffed by people who were not available immediately to, cr to come and run a trauma. And it's interesting that this still persists because the on-call surgical registrar is not simply in the ED 24 hours a day. They may be elbow deep in some child in the operating theatre. And it becomes interesting to try and decide who should be managing paediatric trauma. There are issues about managing paediatric trauma that come down to education. I don't have much of that. They come down to experience. I don't have much of that. And actually, I don't like blood. I don't spill blood very often. That's part of my training. And so coming down to find a child who's bleeding with problems that I don't know much about and that I'm expected to be in charge or at least manage is always interesting. So there's a couple of things out there. And the first thing that sort of struck me when you were talking today was that you say you've not got that much experience, but you are a paediatric surgeon. Surely you see this all the time. No. The reality is that paediatric trauma is rare. There's 737 in one calendar year, and that's actually repeated in the next two years on the Tarnet report. Those are spread amongst all of the centres, and ultimately only 66 trauma laparotomies performed in one year. That means as a paediatric surgeon, I'm likely to do one this year, then not one the next year, the next, but the year after that, none none and the year after that. So our experience is very small and interestingly the laparotomies we're doing is not for control of hemorrhage but for ruptured duodenums, pancreatic injuries, perforations. It's not the same as adult trauma laparotomies. 
And I think if you're listening from different parts of the world, you may find that rate very low. But I think you have to remember that in the UK, paediatric surgery goes up to the age of 16, not 18, and that we have a very low instance, thankfully, of penetrating trauma. And some of the penetrating traumas I see in adults are in the 17, 18-year-olds, which may appear in other countries' data. So the incidence really low of a trauma laparotomy, but you must see a body of children who are suspected of having abdominal trauma. Yes. Certainly, I think paediatric registrars are a valuable part of the trauma team, but it's an interesting debate whether they should be leading the team. Five years ago, that's what we thought should happen, and now we don't think they should be doing that at all, because their education in trauma is virtually zero. It's a disappointment to me that today was the National Training Day for paediatric surgical trainees in trauma at this meeting, and there were three of them came. There isn't an interest in the management of paediatric trauma, either at the registrar level or at the consultant level. It's just something we do occasionally, and most of my colleagues don't see a value in getting education in it, because it's not going to happen to them. So how are you as a network making sure that you have consistency of care, that care is well calibrated, and that we're doing what we should be doing? People aren't really interested in it, because there isn't much to do, and so it becomes difficult then to measure it. Certainly, we know what to do, and to say that people have no education is probably unfair. I think they're aware, but I was uh, only faced recently with a child with a significant liver injury who clearly was deteriorating in front of us, and the decision not to operate is actually almost harder than the decision to operate. And I can then see why my adult colleagues might be making those decisions. In their experience, a laparotomy would be useful. And for ours, I know that I shouldn't do, but standing there at the end of the bed, watching the blood pressure, watching the blood and products being given is a challenge. And I think as we said before on the podcast, management of adult trauma is increasingly becoming more conservative and starting to look a lot more how paediatric surgeons have managed hepatic and splenic injury. And I've certainly got a colleague who says that he's not done a trauma laparotomy for a liver injury now in two years, a hepatobiliary surgeon. And he's very, very concerned about those centres which are continuing to do trauma laparotomies because these are big operations with major mortality and morbidity associated with them. It's certainly an issue that we're dealing with, and as we suggested in the lecture earlier, that splenectomy is probably a marker of care. The understanding that we have that a bleeding patient needs us to stop the bleeding is clear, yet the evidence shows that we can sit tight and that the bleeding will stop. Now, it takes a brave surgeon, or as my boss used to say, bravery on behalf of the patient, to do that when your previous experience would suggest that that's what you should do. But I think that's where we need to lean on the evidence rather than lean on anecdote or our fears and do what the evidence shows us is best. So less bleeding, less mortality, less morbidity, less blood products and a better outcome. But that takes time. It takes sharing that information. We can't expect every surgeon to know about every discipline. And for something that's so rare, I think that's part of the problem. So part of my role, I believe, is in sharing that knowledge that there are different ways of doing things. How effective that is, is yet to be seen. So we've got those aspects of care, 
the paediatric surgeon who may not be immediately available, but clearly going to be part of the trauma team, and certainly heavily involved in the decision-making process about definitive care. And in my experience, I often find the paediatric surgeons coming down and helping those making decisions with the radiologists. It's very much a three, sometimes four-way conversation about decisions for imaging and where do we go with this? Are we going for a CT? Are we going to do serial examination, etc.? I certainly think that there still is a role for surgeons in trauma. I don't think it's as trauma lead, but as you say, it's been present at the decision-making process of what should happen, whether physically in the department or remotely, whilst we may be in another operating department. But an understanding of the process needs to be developed. What we're aware of is that surgeons can't get to be part of the team immediately, and that's why we've stepped it back but they should be invited to come and help out for things that are appropriate. Almost in the same way you don't ask the neurosurgeons to every trauma, but we know that 79% of children will have a head injury. So there's a, a value in being involved at a later stage. I do think we need to share the wisdom that the radiologists have come up with with more effective imaging guidelines and move away from the standard at trauma series of x-rays, move towards an understanding of what CT can do for us, but also start to understand things like fast scan and what its place is or isn't and how that should gauge our further management decisions. Another aspect is what you do do is perform procedures on children. And that's quite a rare thing. In adult medicine, putting chest drains in, obtaining intravascular access, putting intraosseous needles in, Manipulating joints, manipulating fractures are quite common procedures for us in adult medicine. In children, there's not a huge amount of difference in terms of what you actually physically do. We can train for those. But there is a psychological barrier for many people about inflicting damage, essentially. When you, when you cut skin, when you put a chest strain in, you are violating the body. And doing that to a child, there are psychological barriers to many adult physicians to do that. And in my experience, having a paediatric surgeon who can assist with some of those procedures can be really incredibly helpful. Yes. I think one of the skills that we bring is technical. Uh, that we, we do things all the time to children. So we are used to making holes in them, we are used to stopping bleeding, and we are used to the things like chest strains and vascular access. That's what we do. And so it's the specialist role that we should be invited to, to come and be part of or a simple member of the team rather than leading it. There's certainly things that we can bring, and it's that I think the, the discussion is, is more elliptical. It's not that we shouldn't be there, it's that what we're there for is a specific purpose. Most anaesthetists tend to go to the head end. I think it's the same for surgeons. We wouldn't want a surgeon managing the airway, but there are things that we can add to the team when we're invited. So in the early stages, there will be some interesting decisions, joint decisions, to be made about imaging, about the need for an emergent laparotomy, or that will be rare. And then decisions about where the patient is going to go and who is going to look after them. And traditionally, these patients have been dealt with by being admitted in some places under paediatricians and in some places by the paediatric surgeons. But they clearly require an overall picture about the child. It's not often just about one specific injury. I think that's one of the roles that we will undoubtedly continue to have. Not the least that trauma is a dynamic problem. There's the initial impact, but what happens secondarily needs to be monitored. And there is a belief almost that once they're out the emergency door, all the trouble has happened. 
reality is far from the case. For instance, a mesenteric injury seldom perforates within 24 hours, but the bleed into the mesentery causes ischemia, which then subsequently will, will perforate. So there is value in somebody monitoring and managing the patient who is able to assess those things. Pediatricians aren't so used to that, and I think that's where pediatric surgeons have a role. And secondary transfer of patients to intensive care will require them then to be delivered out of intensive care to somewhere else. And I think it's reasonable that pediatric surgeons are at least significantly involved in that management, rather than pediatricians who have less understanding of trauma pathophysiology. Okay, so I've got a couple of rapid-fire questions for you now, if that's okay. So things we've talked about in the past. Don't worry. Okay. There's nothing that's going to phase you here. So, challenges in the ED. Abdominal trauma. We love a bit of fast scanning in the ED. Ultrasound probes, fast scanning for children for abdominal trauma. Good or bad? I have a coin in my pocket which is just as sensitive as yours. As my ultrasound scan? As your ultrasound scan. 50% sensitivity. I say to people, I don't care what alternative medicine you practice. It's not going to change what I'm doing. Okay, so fast scanning is not a major priority, and that's in the RCR guidelines as well, isn't that's it? That's in the guidelines. I have yet to see literature shows me any better. My challenge to the podcast listeners out there, you show me a paper, and I will read it. Okay, tranexamic acid in children? Absolutely no evidence. But that's because they weren't in the CRASH-2 study. It makes sense to me, and I think that we should give it. So the Royal College guidelines have it as a prescription. It would be interesting if children were involved in research studies. But yeah, of course, it makes sense currently, so let's give it. Give it early. In the group of patients who we think are going to require bleeding, there's, there's a bit of an obsession with giving to everybody at the moment, which I think is bad. So at least sticking to the same similar criteria as the CRASH-2. Okay, question number three. Interventional radiology in children. What for? It's intriguing that interventional radiology is on the peer review guidelines. I've yet to see a situation where we would use interventional radiology in children. Adults use it to stop bleeding in spleens. I use magic. Put them on the intensive care unit, give them clotting factors, pray to all known gods, and they stop bleeding without a hole in their groin. The other use of interventional radiology is pelvic fractures. Children don't seem to get the same bleeding from pelvic fractures, and pelvic fractures themselves are very rare. So I'm not sure of the value of interventional radiology. I think what we need is radiologists who can talk to us about vascular injuries, but even then we don't have vascular surgeons who can help us because the vessels are so small. Okay. Pelvic binders in children? Yeah, why not? Give it a whirl? Why not? They don't do anybody any harm. And if you're concerned, put it on. I don't think they actually make a big difference because, as I've already said, there isn't much bleeding. Remember, the average age of a paediatric trauma patient is 7.3. It's not 16. And finally, I think finally, we talked about general paediatric surgery. There are, of course, lots and lots of different types of surgeons. So we do have vascular surgeons, ophthalmic surgeons, ENT surgeons, and some of them do cross the divide between adult and paediatric care. And... Is one of your roles as a paediatric surgeon to coordinate that, or do you leave those specialties to themselves? 
We have what we call transitional care, so patients with colorectal problems, inflammatory bowel disease, and where instead of at the age of 16, we drop them like a stone, we're still involved in their care up to 18 and 20. And similarly, we have our adult practicing colleagues who work with us for the younger children. I think that trauma surgery needs to develop as a discipline and that within that, there should be both experience of paediatric surgery and paediatric surgeons who are getting experience in it. So that's about blending and building those relationships between the two specialities and the, the transitional ages. And I think that's really important to give a continuity and ultimately to learn from each other. Ross. Simon. Thank you so much for that. It's been really interesting. I have a big interest in this sort of thing, but mostly around the education, the attitudes and the beliefs that people have. But ultimately, what I think we're all interested in doing is making sure that we get the right patient to the right care with the right people and that we share as much as we can about how to do that as well as we possibly can. Ross, thank you. My pleasure.